uh, I had the TV on, and I was sitting there getting things together uh, for this morning, and uh, the PowerPoint that didn't have verses to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel on there. Um, I'm not sure what version. I don't know what was going on. Um, so as I was doing that, uh, my brain uh, started to think, and I, and I flipped around for a few minutes, um, and, I, and I started to think, are you, are you ever amazed at the level of deception that intelligent people like yourself can find wreaking havoc in your world? I was flipping channels, and I was looking at all these commercials, and I thought, intelligent people are sitting down, listening and watching this, and they're picking up the phone to call. And see, what, what got me going is there, there was this commercial that was on that, that had this guy who probably wasn't a whole lot older than myself, uh, but was all slumped over and all hunched over, and you know his, his clothes were like 20 years old, and they were baggy, and they didn't really fit, and he was sitting in a cubicle, and he was all depressed and all upset uh, because he was losing his hair. And all of a sudden, not having hair equated to not having life. And then the evangelist came on the screen. This guy with a big white coat and big toothy smile began to tell the good news of, of hair replacement therapy. And he began to talk about whatever miracle working potion or process that he was not only the president of, but a member of as well. And the next thing you know, they, they flipped to this guy. The same guy who, not much older than me, hunched over, sad, depressed, no life because he's got no hair, all of a sudden has a full head of hair, designer clothes, sports car, girl on one side, girl on the back, and life's going great because he's got hair. And I thought, I was so shocked at the level of foolishness that intelligent people are willing to give themselves to. And, and it's, it's unbelievable because do you know how much it costs to produce one of those infomercials? I mean, do you know what it takes to actually do that and not just make it but then buy airtime? There are people who pick up the phone and call. And some of you probably do. I don't know. I, I've been in some of your houses. Yeah, there. Yeah. Some of your houses, you know, got all the made-for-TV stuff, collecting dust all over the place. But the level of deception that intelligent people are willing to give themselves to and part ways with their hard-earned money, I just thought it's unbelievable. As I sat there reveling in Florida's victory and fighting the urge to call the number because I'm getting thin, um, I'm getting thin, seriously, you know. I began to think, if I get so frustrated at how easily deceived people are by such plausible and, in my brain, implausible stories, how much more frustrated should I be about how easily intelligent people are deceived when it comes to matters of their soul? I mean, should I not be more frustrated that intelligent people, people I love, 
people with good hearts, should I not be frustrated with how easily deceived intelligent people are, people in this room, people in this city, people in churches all over this country and this world, how easily deceived we are by plausible lies about the person and work of Jesus and about what things really matter and are most important in life. Should I and should we not be more frustrated about that than we are about how easily we're deceived into parting ways with money in our pockets? And I began to think about it and thought about how easy it is. It's easy to be deceived. It's easy to be fooled. It's, it's easy to find yourselves buying into a deception about the gospel and about Jesus. I, I thought about the pressure, the pressure that we felt as a year or so ago going through everything with Owen, how, how weighty it would feel and, and all of the internal struggles that were going on in our hearts as parents dealing with the situation that was going on with their son and, and facing the impending loss of a son and, and all of the things that people would tell us about who God is and what his responsibility and role or our responsibilities were or weren't in this whole process. And I began to think with the natural desires that existed in the heart of a parent, just who wanted to see their child well and wanted to see their child alive, how easy it was to be deceived by something that was so untrue that did not get me more of Christ, that did not put steel in my spine in the midst of a very difficult scenario, but it drew me away from who he was and away from getting more of him and more onto myself and my own deficiencies and how easily deceived my heart was by things that seemed plausible. They weren't implausible. People weren't telling us things about God and, and about the circumstance that didn't make rational sense in our brain, that didn't touch some inner desire or hope that we might have had. They were fully plausible, but they were empty of, of gospel truth and of sincere truth about the person and work of Jesus. And I remember fighting at different times, sometimes harder than others, and wrestling with my own heart and my own soul as I gripped onto a reality that we had to hold on to and that we had to deal with and we had to fight at the same time with the other hand, trying to pick up a sword and do a fight for my own heart and my own satisfaction in Jesus. And things were beginning to draw me away from being satisfied in him and often becoming more disappointed in him and more distant from him and, and feeling deceived by him when all along it was plausible deceptions and, and plausible lies and, and different things that my heart had grabbed a hold of that were robbing me of a satisfaction in him. And I thought about this last night as I watched that, <clears throat> that infomercial, how, how easy it is for our hearts to be deceived by something that has the, the ring of, of truth, that has the ring of, of real biblical gospel hope that has the, the words that we're so familiar with, but yet when you peel it back and you pull the layers back on the onion, it's empty of any real substance and value. It's empty of the true message of who Jesus is and what he's done, and we so easily in our hearts get deceived by these things. As we continue on this week, this is what the Apostle Paul was dealing with. 
This is what he was struggling for and wrestling for on behalf of, on behalf of this church in, in Colossians. He, he's struggling and he's wrestling and, and he's fighting, we'll see, in just a few minutes. He's fighting for this church, that, that this church and these people and their souls might treasure the worth and the richness of Christ. He, he's agonizing, we'll see, on their behalf for their souls and for their delight and for their hearts and for their steadfastness in the message of the gospel. And he labors and he struggles that they might treasure Christ on one hand. And on the other hand, he labors and he struggles and he fights and he does battle in his soul on their behalf that they might not get to see that they might not get tricked into exchanging what they know about who God is and what they know to be true about who Jesus is and what he's done for a lie. It was, it's something akin to if you're a guy growing up, or, or some of you girls, I remember this, growing up, uh, some of the girls did it too, uh, having baseball cards and collecting baseball cards and not knowing the value of the ones you actually had. Or maybe your dad gave you a whole collection of baseball cards that were his when he was a boy, and you're sitting there with your buddy across the street who had pile full of junk and like one, you know, Ken Griffey second year card and he convinced you back in the time that that was worth these old cards that your dad had. And you exchanged something that you really didn't understand the value of for something that was nothing but a pile of junk. And Paul's doing work in this section of scripture, laboring that this church might treasure Jesus. That in times of joy, that in times of of despair and in times of discouragement, they might be steadfast in their stole, soul and have, have steel in their spines when it comes to the purpose and person of Jesus. And at the same time, they might not exchange that so easily. They might not be so easily deceived, so easily fooled into believing something so untrue about who he is. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Colossians 2. We're going to look at this. We're going to move forward. Some of you who have been here are going, wait a minute, we didn't finish Colossians 1. We'll come back to it. Um, I'm not in a habit of skipping too many verses, um, but we skipped a few that we're going to come back to. If you've got your Bibles, open up to Colossians 2. Let me pray for us, and then we're going we're gonna to walk through this, and we're going to see, see another aspect of the person and the work of Jesus that Paul's highlighting here and that he's fighting for on behalf of this church. <clears throat> Father, first we thank you the opportunity that we have to be together, or the opportunity that you've given each one of us as you've woken us up and, you, and you've called us together, that we might understand more of who you are, that we might treasure you more deeply, love you more fully, um, that joy, that joy might explode in our souls. Lord, in this time of Advent, in this time of the Christmas season, in this time of holidays and chaos and busyness, Lord, my prayer on behalf of my own soul and the soul of this church is that we might, we might treasure you differently in the midst of all this chaos, that maybe the joy that arises in our hearts comes from knowing who you are and what you've done and not from what we think someone might be giving us for Christmas. Lord, let there be real and lasting joy joy that comes from a knowledge of you, from a tangible taste of you. We ask this in the name of your precious son. Amen. I'm going to try to stay back here more. I think I've gotten my quota of emails about wandering down the aisle. So I'll try to stay put a little bit more. Got your Bibles. Colossians 2. Look at verse 1. Look at Paul. Let's look at what Paul's doing here. 
It says, for I want you to know, he's talking to the church, I want you to know how great a struggle that I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all, and that includes us, who I have not seen, who have not seen me face to face. This is the key to Paul's leadership. This is the key to who Paul is and what he's done. In fact, really, this is the key to all real spiritual leadership. What Paul is saying here is that he is struggling. The, the, the word that we get out of this is this word agonizing, this word agon. This, he's agonizing and, and struggling on behalf of this church who he has never even seen. This church that he's never stepped foot in, this church that he didn't plant, this church that a guy who listened to him went back and preached the message of the gospel in and planted and started that Paul never even visited. He said, I want you to know, first of all, how much I agonize, how much I struggle on, behalf, on your behalf and on behalf of all those who I haven't seen. And this is the key to understanding who Paul is and the key to understanding, in one sense, his effectiveness and in another sense, his passion. And, and it's the key to understanding really all legitimate and, and, and fruitful spiritual leadership is that there's a struggle on behalf of other people. There's an agonizing that occurs in your soul on behalf of other people. Paul's heard of, of a deception that's come to this people and, a, and of a temptation that this church has to be deceived by something that isn't true about Jesus. And his immediate response is a, is a battle in his own soul, an agonizing in his own soul. It's a very, very difficult responsibility and a difficult part of what it is to, to be a follower of Christ and connected to one another in a family. There are going to be times when our hearts are gripped and, and begin to struggle and battle and agonize over the state of another person. And one of the hardest parts about being a pastor, I think, is the fact that the responsibility and, and the awareness of the struggle that exists across so many people and in so many different ways never actually goes away. Like the, you, you, you punch out of your job and you go home, for the most part, most of you can put a measure of it aside, but yeah, one of the hardest parts is that, that is involved in, in leading a church and, and being a pastor in a church and to some degree being a Christian who's a part of a church because you can't escape it is the reality that there's a battle going on, not just in your own soul, but in the souls of all the people you care for and you long for and you want to see transformed, and you want to see change, and you want to see firmness come in their faith too, and you can never get away from it. That there are moments when you just wake up, and you're aware of something that somebody's struggling with, and your soul just begins to agonize over them. And you begin to pray, and you begin to plead, and, and you begin to think, and you sometimes begin to strategize, and you sometimes begin to just do a battle for their soul. And you can never really get away from it, but it's the key to what it is to being a, a leader, and especially spiritual leadership. And it's really a part that you can't get away from as a part of being a Christian and being a part of a church, and that we are connected together in Christ and called to encourage and exhort one another and, and, and help one another in the process of treasuring Christ and, and in cultivating the soul to understand who he is, to, to go deeper into an understanding of who he is and to desire more of him. There's going to be times when you're going to struggle on behalf of other people. And for Paul, this was, you can read through his letters, this was a mark of, of his leadership. And if any of you begin to feel called into leadership and, and you begin to own more responsibility in the life of the church and, and caring for and, and leading other people, you'll see it's a mark of all real leadership. There's this process of 
of agony and struggle on behalf of other people. And this is what Paul's doing. He's laboring and agonizing for this church and, and for us now, for all of those that he hadn't seen face to face, for all of the people who have been bought by Jesus, who are followers of Jesus then and, and by nature of the scriptures now. He's agonizing that we might treasure Jesus for who he really is and not be deceived into giving up what we know to be true about him for something that are, li- that are lies, for things that are lies about who he is. See, what had happened, and we'll read through it. I didn't stick it all up there because it's a lot, of, a lot of scripture we'll go through this morning. What had happened is these people that had come into the church, there were these men who, who maybe weren't entering in and teaching, but who were becoming influences on the people of the church and, and becoming influences on the thoughts of people in the church and the lives of people in the church. And they were beginning to tempt them to believe that there was something more important than Jesus for the natural growth and fullness of their Christian life. That Jesus was a, was a great place to start, but that he was not the sum total of all that God had for us and the fullness of what it meant to be in Christ. And in verse 4, if, you, if you've got it open, you can see that there are these people who were coming in that were speaking plausible lies to this church. They were speaking lies about Jesus that were plausible enough to possibly be true, but empty of any real substance of truth. That's what a plausible lie is. I mean, if I stuck a big pillow underneath my sweater and came in here with a wig, you probably wouldn't think I was a pregnant woman. But if you caught me downtown with a, you know, an architectural file underneath my arm and, and a briefcase, you probably could believe that at some point I was an architect or an engineer. I'm not. But there's an air of plausibility to it. There's a truthiness that we've talked about before to it. It seems like it could be true, and to some point in your heart, it might should be true. But it's not. And there are these people that, that were coming in and beginning to influence this church with plausible lies. And, and not just plausible lies, but empty deceits. Look down at, uh, at verse 6. Or verse 8. See to it, Paul says, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and, and empty deceit. According to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world. And not according to Christ. Paul wasn't knocking philosophy as a school. He wasn't knocking uh, philosophy as a, as a discipline, but he was knocking the practice that these men were engaging in of enticing believers, enticing people in this young church into thinking that Jesus wasn't enough and what they needed to do was return to the synagogue uh, that was the true heart of, of, of spiritual worship of the one true God. So he was enticing these young people to believe that Jesus was was right, Jesus was true, but what they needed now to achieve the fullness of life was to go back to these particular practices that were consistent with the the Hellenistic understanding of Judaism at that time. He was telling them that Jesus was enough to get you started, but there was a system of behavior, a pattern of behavior, a ritualistic process by which they needed to order their lives by to achieve any measure of real fullness or maturity in the Christian life. He was taking... This group, if it wasn't just one man, we don't really know, was tempting this church to believe a plausible lie, something that really was ultimately empty and deceitful, tempting them to think that Jesus was a great place to start, but now religion was the way by which they grow, that there was a structure and a system of behaviors that they needed to conform themselves to in order to grow, in order to experience real fullness of life. And it's not a foreign concept for us, is it? It's not a real foreign concept. 
you know, many of you, and myself included, were transformed by Jesus when we, when we heard the message of the gospel. That God opened up our eyes and he opened up our souls to, to understand and to see the beauty of Jesus and, and to trust him and to repent and to, to turn from so many other things that we had put our hope in and our identity in and our security in and begin the process, the lifelong process of, of trusting Jesus and turning away from these things, of, of fighting to be satisfied in Jesus and not in these other things, of knowing who he was and, and experiencing real joy in him. And we started there. And then somewhere along the line, we were fed some kind of line that now that we started here, what we needed to do was to read this book and, or read this book or, or set aside this much time each day and listen to this music and not this music and see this thing and not this thing and wear this stuff and not this stuff and go to this place and not this place. And when we figured it all out and we got it all right, then we'd actually be real Christians. We'd be growing. We'd be mature. We'd be people who really followed Christ. And slowly but surely, we became consumed with all of these different things and no longer consumed with the, the battle for our souls, consumed with the projection of a particular system or image of what we thought it meant to be a follower of Christ and a Christian, not concerned at all with the state of our souls and repenting from things that couldn't bring us any life, couldn't bring us any hope, couldn't bring us any joy, no longer fighting to be satisfied in Jesus, to be treasuring the richness of what he's done for us. This is what was happening to this church. They were being deceived into thinking that there was something more, that there was a behavior, a pattern, a, a process, a culture that they had to absorb and to then live according to if they really wanted to grow and mature. And what Paul is saying is he's, he's agonizing. He's saying, look, I am, I am struggling on your behalf. There are lies and deceptions that you are being fed about the Jesus and the work of Jesus in your life and on your, and on your soul. And I am struggling that you might not be deceived by them and that you might treasure him for who he really, really is. That you might treasure the richness of the person and the work of Jesus. That you might treasure Jesus, Paul says, I think it's in verse 3, in whom rest the riches all of God's wisdom, and all of God's knowledge. There's a million things that we put our hope in and that we trust and, and that we treasure and that we think will bring us a, a particular joy or a particular satisfaction. And I say treasure very specifically. And when we talk about the distinctives of the church, we say one of the things that we want to be about cultivating and we want in time for people who are part of this church to be increasingly recognized by by being a people who are treasuring the riches of the gospel because that's a very specific use of language when you treasure something you don't just like it you don't just enjoy it when you think about the things that you really treasure in your heart and i don't know what they really are for you when you think about what they really are they are things that you will go to the mat for they are things that you will hold on to with every fiber of your being because you believe in them rest what they promise and can bring you what they've promised to bring you and you will hold on to for dear life and you will fight for them. You treasure them. You hold them closely because you believe that they contain some intrinsic value that will bring you something that you know you need. You treasure them. You hold on to them. And what Paul is doing and, and with the essence of my struggle in my labor in my own soul and for this church and and for people whose faces i haven't even seen that will be a part of this church is a struggle and a labor that you might treasure jesus 
that he is the treasure of your soul and not just the treasure. But Paul says that he is full of the treasures of God's wisdom and God's knowledge. He is the treasure and the treasure chest. He's not just what we hold on to, but in him is the fullness of the person of God and all of God's wisdom and all of God's understanding. And when you think about that, do you, do you know the treasures, the riches that exist in the person of Jesus? Do you know the riches that he has offered to us in his person, the riches that are ours because we are in him and, and he is in us? Listen to this. Did you know that Jesus promised to always pray for you? That he intercedes on your behalf at the right hand of God right now for you? That Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead, intercedes on your behalf, prays for you? He promised to pray for you? He promised to never abandon you to the judgment you deserve for your sins? He promised to preserve you in this life and carry you on to eternity? He promised to fill you with the fullness of his spirit, the same spirit of God that raised him from the dead. He promised to glorify you and allow you to share in his glory in eternity. What things in your life that you treasure, that you hold on to, have ever promised to do that for you? They've ever promised anything like that. And if they have promised it, do you really think they could do it? I mean, what things do you hold on to, do you treasure, do you go to the mat for that ever promised that or could ever deliver it? But that's what he's promised to do. Look at what he's done. He gave his life for your sins on the cross. He canceled the debt that you owe to God for your sins. Saw so a few weeks ago, he transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness. He transferred you out of a out of a place in your life of hard-heartedness where you were ruled by sin and he gave you a heart of flesh and his spirit and has transferred you into his kingdom. He's forgiven you of all of your sins. All of them. Past, present, and things you haven't even done yet. Ways that you haven't even disregarded the nature of God yet. He's forgiven you of them. He's reconciled you to God. We talked about last week. The most amazing thing. He's given you the faith to see who he is, so that in your own hard-heartedness, he gives you the capacity to see him and repent of your hard-heartedness while you were still yet hard-hearted. He has actually given you the faith necessary to see him for who he is, that you might repent of your own distance from him and be reconciled to him. That's what he has done. What, what things do you treasure? What, what, what things in your soul do you go to the mat for that are worth comparing to Jesus? I mean, what things, honestly, I, I, you know, I, I can't answer them for you. You, got, you know what they are. What things in your soul are, are, are worth comparing to him? Have they ever done any of that for you? And could they ever do any of that for you? That's the thing we talked about for, for weeks when we first got started. All of these things, all of these things we hold on to, all of these treasures, all of these things ultimately become functional idols, these functional gods that we give a measure of worth that was never due to them, but only due to God alone. And we, and we hold on to them and cling to them and, and lay down before them and we give them what they want, hoping that they give us what we think we need. And 
They always promise so much and always deliver so little. They always demand so much from us and constantly raise the bar and constantly tell us there's so much more we need to do before they give us what they've promised. And in the end, when we fail to do it, they can never forgive us of anything. Our hearts get deceived into worshiping, giving worth to, value to things other than who God is for us in Jesus. And these deceptions come, these plausible lies come. And they draw our hearts away from who Jesus is and what he has done, what he has promised us and what he has done on our behalf already. And they draw us away and we find ourselves trying to conform to this behavior, never paying attention to how far our hearts and our souls have been enticed away from him. And this is what Paul is laboring for. Saying this is Jesus, this is who he is. This is why we've taken weeks to talk about him. He is God. He is the fullness of the Godhead. He is God of gods, light of lights, Lord of lords, creator of everything that is. All that is was created by him and for him, owes its worth to him and will be glorified. He will be glorified by it. That's Jesus. In him the fullness of God dwells. All of the treasures and the riches of wisdom and understanding of God are in Jesus. And Paul goes on to say in verse 10, and you are filled in him. All of that, what he has done, what he will do, who he is, the fullness of deity in Jesus has now filled you. What else, my goodness, what else do we think we need? What other places do we think we need to run to to find something that we don't have in the person and the work of Jesus? Look, take comfort. Take comfort. Jesus has done all that we could never do. Jesus has fulfilled all of the decrees of God in a way we never could. We talk about it all the time. He did what we could not do. And then he paid the price for our sins and he's given us that righteousness. And he's not only given us that righteousness, he's given us himself. And we are now filled with all the fullness of God. All of the treasures and the riches of God and the wisdom of God and the understanding of God. All of the treasures of the gospel story of redemption, of real wisdom and real understanding are found in him and he has filled us with those things. Take take great comfort in that. Find great joy in that. Let those bring to light the things that you have put your trust and your hope in. Let those things about Jesus cast the light on those things for what they really are. Begin to see him for who he really is. Begin to treasure him for what he has done. What things, what things that we put our hope in and our trust in? What things do we treasure? that could ever do for us what he has already done. This is what Paul agonizes for. This is what he labors for. He labors for this church to see Jesus, to trust him, to treasure him, to do battle for their souls, to not be deceived into thinking that it's their behavior that gets them any merit before God, that it's their behavior that proves who they are before God, but it's Jesus and what he has done, and they're being deceived, and we're so easily deceived, and he's laboring for this. He's praying for this. He's working for this, to see, for people to see Jesus and to treasure him for who he is and 
To that degree, Paul says, he prays because it's going to take the people of God to see this happen. He prays, he says, I think it's in verse 3, that their hearts be encouraged. That your hearts be encouraged. Paul prays and he labors that courage is deposited into your soul and into your heart because it's going to take courage to see Jesus for who he is and to live accordingly. It's going to take courage to set yourself apart from the lies and the deceptions about who he is that are so convenient and so easy and and so deceitful. It's going to take courage to treasure Jesus and to trust Jesus and to live in the good of it. And And he prays for courage and he prays that people's hearts are encouraged because to some degree we're we're tempted as they were to doubt. Discouragement is an unbelievable petri dish for doubt. Discouragement, the lack of courage, the lack of courage and substance and firmness in their faith is an unbelievable breeding ground for doubt. And so Paul prays for courage, that their hearts are encouraged, that courage is deposited in their hearts that they might know the person of Jesus, treasure Jesus, know it to be true, and have the courage to live accordingly, to have the courage to turn from things that can never do for them what they promised and put their hope in Jesus. It's hard. It takes courage, but take comfort. He is who he says he is. And he prays that their hearts are encouraged, but then he also prays that the church is knit together in, in love. See, to see this take place, to see this church treasure Jesus, to, to see this church together reflect the wisdom of who God is in Jesus for them. It's going to take each other. They're going to need each other. And Paul prays that this church, that all of the different strands of this church reflected in the people, all the different types of people and backgrounds of people and, and experiences of people, that all those things get woven together. You can imagine sitting there, you might knit. Any knitters in here? That's oh, gotten hot again, hasn't it? Yeah. Dan knitted the sweater for me. Um, you might have seen somebody knit as they sit there with all those different yarns and the different strands, and somehow, in the action of their hands, look like chopsticks to me, the action of their hands just doing something, this unbelievable pattern and product is produced through all of these different strands of yarn that don't seem in of themselves to have anything in, con- in connection to each other. And Paul's praying to this church, is knit together in the same way. All of those different strands and all those different things are knit together in love. That together, this church is for each other what God has called them to be, that together they might be able to encourage one another and, and exhort one another and help one another along the way of treasuring Jesus. And see, without the unity and without the unity that's, that's birthed in, in love, There's an unbelievable, unbelievable breeding ground for disunity and discouragement. And so Paul prays, and he labors, and he agonizes, and he prays that their hearts might be encouraged, that courage might be deposited into their soul, that together they could be knit together in the love of God and in the work of God in Christ, that together as a people, They could do the work of encouraging one another and helping one another in the process and in the battle for their hearts to treasure Jesus, that they might know him. And ultimately, Paul says, this together, this this encouragement, this knitting together, this process of cultivating one another's souls to treasure Jesus, to see him for who he is, is 
the wisdom and understanding of God and the fullness of God brings, brings assurance, Paul says in verse 4. What he's looking for is for this work together, for this church together, to pursue Jesus together, to pursue their delight in God together, that they might come to assurance. And that's what it all comes down to. I mean, when it's late at night and, you know, lights go out and you're left with you and your conscience and you're left with you and all the things that go on in your heart, all the things that fight for your attention, all the things that fight for your, your sense of joy, all the things that fight for your, your mind, all that goes on in your mind when you're all alone with yourself. What it all comes down to when it comes to Jesus and treasuring him for who he is is this issue of assurance. What really gets tested, the thing that really begins to test the worth and the treasure that you have in Jesus in your soul is the enemy's ability to deceive you into thinking that he is not who he says he is. And when there's not courage, when your hearts are not encouraged with one another through the word, when there's not a connection, when you're not together with one another, helping one another, encouraging one another, when our hearts are not treasuring Jesus for who he really, really is, we find ourselves susceptible to doubt and find ourselves lacking any sense of real assurance that he is who he says he is and he has done what he says he's done, that he has done. And when we have no assurance, we find our hearts, we find our souls, we find our lives open to all kinds of different answers. When there is no assurance, we find ourselves open to all sorts of salvation. We find ourselves open to all sorts of saviors. We find ourselves open to all sorts of, of options. So Paul's prayer is that together they might treasure Jesus, that together they might labor and fight and agonize together for one another, for their souls, that their hearts might be encouraged, that courage would be deposited into their souls, that there might be a firmness to their faith, he says in verse 5, that comes because of this encouragement, and that they might be knit together in love, caring for one another, encouraging one another, that they might achieve the assurance of understanding that together the church would know that Jesus is who he says he is, has done what he says he's done, and is worth their worship, and is worth their praise, and is worth their whole lives, and is worth their self. He prays for them. He agonizes for them. And ultimately, that's my prayer. That's my prayer for my, my soul. It's my prayer for my family. It's my prayer for us as a church. It's what keeps me up at night. Chairs don't keep me up at night. Locked doors don't keep me up at night. Um, not typing the right lyrics don't keep me up at night. What keeps me up at night sometimes is, is the desire. It's the agonizing. It's the battle for a joy and for a delight in your soul and in mine that we might not be easily deceived by plausible lies and and empty deceptions about the person of Jesus, that there might be a firmness to our faith, that our faith might find itself in times of joy and in times of struggle, firm and steadfast in who Jesus is, that we might know him to be the fullness of God in whom all the treasures and wisdom and understanding dwell, and that we might know tangibly and functionally that we are in him and we are filled full in him.
that there's nothing else we need, no other place we need to go, nothing else we need to give our value and our worth to in those moments, and that we might be about the process of, of growing in our capacity to treasure him for who he is. That's what, that's what keeps me up at night of all the ways that I tend to give my heart's affections to something else. And so I pray, and I pray with Paul, and I plead on behalf of, of my soul, and I plead on behalf of this church, and may we know Jesus. May we treasure him for who he is. May we not be satisfied with information about him, and may we not find ourselves so easily conformed into this pattern of behavior, this empty deceit that's built on the traditions of men, that's built on what somebody says we should do or, 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 or ought to do or should look like or, or should say, but we might find our lives firm and steadfast in Jesus, built upon the pattern of the gospel, centered on that, operating fully out of that, and that we might in that moment and in that process and in that growing sense of treasuring and maturity, we might actually find real joy. We might actually experience real joy. That we might not find ourselves sporadically experiencing a sense of what it is to be happy because something happened, but there might be an abiding and deep joy that marks our souls because we understand that all that we need, all the treasures of God, all the riches of God, all of the wisdom and all the understanding, all of the hope is found in Jesus, and we're found in him, and he's given himself to us. Let me pray for us as we close. We're out of time. Jesus, I'll be the first to say that uh, there are more times than I like to admit when I'm unaware of I'm unaware of how far my heart has really uh, been enticed away from you. How, how many times and how often I give myself to other things and I think that other things will do for me what only you have done when when they've never they've never promised to be able to do what you could do and they've never delivered anything close to what you've done on our behalf. So Jesus, I thank you that uh, well, you open up our eyes, you open up our hearts to see all the ways that we get deceived and, and you call us to yourself and you, and you give us what we need to turn away from, from those things and and to give our affections and to give our heart back to you and to begin to trust you. And but I, I love the fact that you have you have created this life to be a process of constantly growing in an understanding of who you are. That life is this process of growing into a deeper knowledge of what you have done on our behalf and this constant process of being able to turn from things that are so, so less valuable than you turn from things that have promised so much and delivered so little and to turn to you. And that life can be this constant process of, of day in and day out being excited anew for who you are and what you've done. That the joy never has to leave because every single day you, 
you allow us to see who you are fresh and anew. That joy comes at every moment in life as we see who you are and, and how you've transformed the circumstance that we find ourselves in no matter what it is. And how we can live differently in each of those circumstances because of who you are. That joy never has to escape our hearts. And you've created this process that we get to live lives that are constantly turning our affections towards you. Lord, thank you for that. And we thank you that you've given us yourself to do that work in our hearts, to begin to open us up and, and point us in the right direction. It's not even at that point up to us to do it. You, you're in us by your spirit pointing us towards you. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, and, and, and ultimately in all of it, as our hearts are filled with joy and, and our lives are growing in this capacity to treasure you and they're being transformed and they're being changed. Lord, it's not the end-all, be-all that we be full of joy because of who you are, but as we are full of joy and we live lives that are changed by what you have done and we're living differently in the circumstances of lives, you're receiving glory. You're being made to look as great as you really are. You're being made to look as valuable as you really are. And people see that in us and they don't see just how great our lives are or how different we live, but they see you in us. So I thank you for that. And I ask even in this holiday season that the joy, that the joy is real, the joy is deep, and the joy is, is fresh for many of us. In your name we pray. Amen.